another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. All right, another episode of uh, Behind the Vinyl. Me, Nicholas, joined by the Australian guy, Darren. Of course. And uh, the one and only, Mr. Dave Ellison. How right. you doing? How you doing? What's going on? <laughs> uh, in Sweden, of, uh, I actually have a little <laughs> Swedish in me, believe it or not. I've, uh, I've done the family tree long before right. Ancestry.com and all that. And uh, my, on my dad's side, Norwegian, German. On my mother's side, English and Swedish. Oh, there so, you go. Uh, it's good to be home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Home of the Vikings. Yeah, right? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Nice to have you in town. Yes. Yeah, thank you. A little bit of a bucket list kind of um, yeah. guest. You know, we've had a lot of guests on here. And uh, yeah, you're definitely you. up there with one of our bucket list thank names. Thank you. So, Appreciate uh, that. Good yeah. to have you here, and of course we picked. Um, we picked this time. We picked uh, Rust in Peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, coming up to thirty years. It seems to get picked a lot. It's a. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the fan favorites, and you're right. It is. It's thirty years. Yeah. Um, and uh, there will be some stuff coming up around that. Just oh, to nice. tip a hat a little bit about it, as you would expect. Yes. Uh, I can't go into the details, <laughs> but you know, the album came out, I believe, in September. I think, right? Twenty fourth. Twenty fourth. That sounds right. So, um, you know. If you're in the local record shop, keep your eyes open <laughs> later in the year. How, how do you feel this album, 30 years? Like, what, what does that make you feel? Feel young? <sighs> you know, it's so funny. I mean, I haven't, I don't think I've aged a bit. I mean, you know, <laughs> look in the mirror and other people may say the other opposite. But, uh, you know, Rust in Peace was a big record for me, not so much musically, because it's just kind of a continuation of what we were already doing, writing very complex, difficult intricate music i mean really prog rock for all intents and purposes i guess the only thing that difference is prog from thrash is prog is in seven four and thrash is in four four uh you know and we've got a little bit of the led zeppelin thing where you know dave would write a riff and we just put the drums in four four and eventually it circles around and lands back on the one you know which is uh um you know and so and i guess i think having nick menza come in on this record was funny because nick would always hear Dave's riff starting on the upbeat, and so he would play it backwards. He'd play on the upbeat. And All right, go, okay. No, 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 you're starting, on, you're, you know, here's the one. And Nick would be like, no, I swear it's not, you know. And, and so lots of times Nick's, really for the next decade, starting with Rust in Peace, but the next decade, some of Nick's most brilliant moments were his mistakes. <laughs> and he would do something, and Dave would go, wait, 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 what did you just do? He goes, I don't know. It was a mistake. He goes, wait, wait. We're, you know, something. We learned to start recording rehearsals and writing sessions. Right. Yeah. right. You know, his run tape and he's like, back that up. Let's hear what he did. And, and Nick would just laugh. He goes, I, it was, I, it was a mistake. I don't. I can't even play it again. You know. So, so there's you know the creativity. You know, it was definitely a season of of um, restructuring, redirecting uh, the future of Megadeth. And to me, that's what that album. You know, for the fan, obviously to the listener, it should be about the music. But mm. me internally, these records are—it's uh, like looking at a photo album, and you know, you go, "Oh yeah, there we were with Uncle Jim out fishing," you know, and <laughs> oh yeah, Uncle Sally's or Uncle whatever Joe's drunk by the fire, and yeah. you know, whatever you kind of remember. And to me, that's what these albums are—they're just photo, they're like photo albums, they're right. sonic photo albums, and they're just snapshots of of my life, our life together as a band. Yeah. And so that's what I get when we go down memory lane like this with these <laughs> interviews like this is I think about who, what, when, and where, and sometimes, you know, the names are changed to protect the guilty, you know. <laughs> I 
I want to ask, I want to start off with, um, you had Mike Klink. Mm-hmm. And before that, he'd done Appetite for Destruction. Right. He'd done Sea Hags, mm-hmm. who turned into nothing, really. Yep. Great band, though. And uh, he, he'd, he'd worked on, and he'd done Triumph before mm-hmm. that. And he'd worked on And Justice for All with Metallica. Started off St- started working off. on that But one. you know what we were most impressed with is that he had worked on Strangers in the Night by UFO. By UFO, of course. That right. was the record that right. got okay. me right. and Dave and Marty excited. Right. Now, of course, we the Guns record was huge. Yeah. Wasn't that the record that got him Guns as well? <sighs> you know, I don't know. I mean, he's, you know, Mike and I are, are, are good friends. And, yep. and, you know, he's got a book in him. I mean, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, so apparently from what he told me, he had worked under Ron Nevison, the producer. Right. And... Um, that's how he got, you know, was working on the UFO stuff. And, of course, we were like, come on, tell us some Michael Schenker stories. You know, that's all we wanted to know. We wanted to know, you not so much dirt, but just, you know, you. Re- I think about that time we started to realize, wait a minute, all these bands were all the same, right? There's the same kind of cast of characters. Um, and it wasn't so much about digging dirt and, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff, but it's, it's you know, sometimes when your heroes are made human, yeah. um, especially when you're in cutting a record and we're on Capitol Records and we're working with real producers and, you know, it's, and all of a sudden it's kind of like, wow, we're, we're one of them, you know, and that yeah. was a cool moment, I think, for, for all of us in Megadeth to go like, wow, we're, we're here. Now, I didn't feel like we had arrived yet, you know, right. um, because really I think probably Rust in Peace is the record that turned the corner. You know, new decade, yep. uh, new record, new producer, new management with Ron Lafitte managing us, really pulling things together. Because Dave and I, were we were a mess. We were, we were drug addicts. We were on drugs. You know, in the early days, it was just using a lot of drugs, having a lot of fun. And right. then it crossed the line into being strung out and being, you know, addicts and... And that was really what late 88 through 89 uh, was about. And, you know, I got clean March 1st, 1990, and I've stayed clean ever since, thank God. Um, and, you know, that that was really the big turning thing. Because right. that, that, that changes everything. Yeah. It changes how you treat people, how you view people, what your day-to-day routine is. I mean, I think I was in cutting tracks, my bass tracks on that record like three weeks sober, maybe right. a month sober. Wow. I was going to say, yeah. so you must have written this record and recorded high. some of it. Yeah. <laughs> Super high. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we weren't even high. That was just our lifestyle. Yep. You know, yep. that's that's the difference when you go from being a drug user to being a drug addict. Right. When you're an addict, you know, just getting drugs is to just get well and to get normal. Yeah. So you can go be productive. You right. Know? Yeah. And that, that record, I mean, it was methadone clinics. It was rehab. It was... Yeah hiring managers managers firing us and hiring new managers and you know guitar techs quit i mean even the guitar techs quit they're like we can't even take these guys you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah and for you know fortunately when nick came in and this was 1989 um you know when nick came in he was patient enough with mm. with you know me and dave uh ron lafitte had wanted to manage the band for a number of years um and uh he had been on the road as a tour manager for armored saint Oh, uh, on okay. the Metallica right. Wasp Armored Saint tour, you right, know, kind of right, got his, right, yeah. got his, you know, his learned some chops there, and then he became a manager. Of course, now he manages Pharrell Williams and right. you know yep. One Republic. I mean, oh, he's top okay, tier. Right. He's one of the biggest managers in the world now, you know. But um, has remained a dear friend, and it's interesting when we had this this lifestyle and connection together with that. And he look, Ron saved my life, man. He helped me get clean. You know, he looked me in the eye one day in the kitchen at the apartment me and Dave had and he's and I came home from the drug dealer and he and I was in tears and I just said I can't take it and he said look if you want help 
I'll drop everything to help you, but right. you really got to want it. And I did. I said, I do. And he did. And he did everything he could in his power. And, and again, it took a few months, but I got clean and here I am, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I owe my life to Ron. <coughs> wow. So, so this is pretty intricate kind of music too on this. So how did you find playing in that state? this kind of music you know that's a good question because i think you know what when gar and chris were in the band and it's funny because uh, my team ellison uh, tom hazard is working on a, a memoir with chris poland um because boy buy that book when it comes out because that's got <laughs> stories and and he doesn't have to pull any punches because he's not in the band and, yeah, right you know, but and it's a great book and chris right. is as well as has been sober many years and so he's an adult and he can own his side of the street yeah it's, it's great but uh um, when they, when Gar and Chris were in the band, that was, you know, they were, ja- they, they were jazz musicians and that right. was kind of this, you know, if you want to be like the greats, you got to be high, you got to take heroin, you got to do what the greats did. Of course, we never thought, well, all the greats died. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, right? that, you forget that part. <laughs>
But that was when the road down into the, you know, cocaine and the, and the heroin you started, mm. you know. So this is, you know, several, this is what, two records later. Right. You know, that Dave and I are now, again, down into this lifestyle. And, um, and you know, when, so while we were writing, we, you know, again, it, it was, it was the, the last thing you wanted to do. I remember Keith Richards' quote. He said, he goes, I never get sick until I run out of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and that was some quote he had many years ago, you know. Um, and, and I, you know, that was it. It's like, as long as there was a supply going, you know, being loaded, being strung out was normal. And you could play fine. And, hmm. and I, so I got the whole jazz musician I, mentality. I, I understood it. Um, <clears throat> but... Then, you know, comes this cor- turn in this corner into sobriety to record the record. So writing the record, you know, I mean, look, we go to rehearsal five days a week. That's what we did um, at odd hours of the day because it's all predicated around when you scored the drugs. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're dealing with drug dealer hours and that kind of stuff and in and out of rehab. And, you know, so the writing of that record, um, you know, it was it was not a record, except for The Poison Was the Cure, which is actually a title that Chris Poland wrote down on a pad of paper on the P-Cells tour. Oh, right. He I wrote it down. All right. Yep. Yeah, it was okay. called The Poison Was the Cure. It was about heroin, you know, that the, the poison is becomes the cure yeah, when yeah. you're strung yeah. out. And um, so we wrote this record, you know, through this whole season, and then, of course, we recorded it. It's completely clean. I mean, right. totally sober. Um, and um, but I mean, the writing started in in on the So Far So Good So What tour. Mm. Holy Wars is pretty much written on the on that tour. Um, and we came off the road. We went in the studio. I seem to remember it was written on the road. Maybe maybe we wrote it right after we came home. Um, and there was a we played Castle Donington, Monsters Rock. Yes. I went home, went to rehab first. And then that started that. And the yeah. thing that sucks about rehab is it just ruins your drug using. Because now you know better, you know what I mean? Like, as if you didn't before, and of course we do. But now all of a sudden it's sort of like the mirror of truth is in front of you, you know? And so now we're in trying to record, and now the drug use was now called out, so to speak. It was kind of called out on the rug, you know? And it was sort of like, hey, this is an issue. Well, we'll deal with that later. So we write Holy Wars. We write... Um, Tornado of Souls, even though we didn't have the title yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's t- that this, there's a, another title, Child Saint, which is a song title Dave had for many years, was kind of kicking this idea around. And there's a scratch vocal of that, actually, on a, on a, on a demo. Because uh, we did a demo where we put down Holy Wars, Polaris. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even Rust in Peace Polaris, because the Rust in Peace thing came oh, right before right. we recorded the record. And... Um, and um, and then Tornado of Souls, which again musically those three were complete. I mean, top to bottom, and Holy Wars was complete with lyrics, almost exactly the arrangement, except for the little uh, flamenco guitar part Marty added when yeah. when we got him in the band. Otherwise, that record was pretty, or that song was pretty much exactly written like that and made it to the final cut like that. Cool, so. nice. Now, um, let's touch on that a little bit lyrically, right? It mm-hmm. comes from, you know, the old tale of it, it coming out of Belfast, coming of something. Yeah, yeah, Holy Wars, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah Holy yeah. Wars, something Dave said and something you pulled him up on. You, they had to rush you guys out of there or yeah. sneak you Well, we didn't there. know. I mean, you know, we're, again, drinking a bunch of Guinness and, <laughs> yeah. what you know, a bunch of Irish beers, you know, and uh, um, just rolling how we did on So Far So Good So What back yeah. in those days. And, uh, and, you know, usually we'd go on tour and we'd be detoxing. 
which right. sucks to be on tour playing speed metal, detoxing off heroin, off of an opiate. get the gear in. in yeah. yeah. So then, all of a sudden, you drink a lot to just sort of take away the pain and sort of blot out the, you know, the consciousness of your state of being, you know what I mean? And that's what happened that night. And, um, yeah, and they were selling our merchandising. And, again, it's it was a very, you know, internal situation uh with with you know where does the money go well not not to the band you know and um and dave's not one to let stuff just slide you know what i mean so uh but not knowing the politics and what Mm -hmm. that was i mean look it's youtube but you know sunday bloody sunday for lack of a better description that's what it is you know and um so yeah we're escorted out on a in a a bus like you know get out of here to the hotel we go and you know, then it's one of those things when you when you you know wreak havoc in a town. It's like, are we going to be able to cross the border and get out of here? You know, because Belfast, you know, the Northern Ireland was a, essentially a separate state yes. from, from yes. Southern Ireland, yes. as, as you both well know. Um, but you know, we being Americans, I mean, we don't have these problems in America. No. I mean, you know, we've got many states which are just like the countries of Europe, but exactly. all the states yeah. play nice together. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the whole point of it. Yeah. And so these kind of conflicts were very. You know, you realize, whoa, you're, you know, this is a whole different playground here, you know. And uh, but I think lyrically that this the lyric of Holy War stands today. I mean, even as we sing it, you know, mm-hmm. last night singing it on stage, I'm just like, man, this is this applies as much today, 30 years later. It as does. It, did it then. does. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>
let's go back a little bit. You you mentioned. Um, let's talk about Nick Menzer first. Mm-hmm. He was actually the drum tech, right? He was. He was, and, and I mean, he was a drummer. His his yep. father. It's funny. His father Don Menza, um, esteemed first chair tenor saxophonist for Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, uh, a noted woodwind player in the jazz world and the, <clears throat> the bebop genre in particular. So it's funny that Nick, and he even said it in his book, you know, I like, how do you, how do you rebel against your dad who, you know, J- bebop was the rock and roll. That was yes. the thrash metal yes. of jazz. That was like rebellious even against jazz, you yeah. know. So like Nick even said in his book, he goes, if, I, if my dad played rock and roll, I would have played jazz. But because he played jazz, I played rock and roll. Like, you know what I mean? Like, how do you rebel against your musician dad? Yeah. You know, so... You know, Nick just had a rebellious spirit in him, and but he was a but he had a great. He was very creative, um, and he was a great rock star. Just his boldness and and um, and just his his you know just he 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 attacked the drums. You know, he attacked life. He didn't just subtly walk in. He just really went for it. And I think that was something Megadeth needed. Mm. I love Chuck Beeler's playing. I just played with him a few months ago when I went through Detroit. I got him back out. We played some of the So Far So Good Sweat songs. And, man, those songs only feel that good when he's playing them. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's, it's incredible. I just yeah. looked at him and I went, man, I love playing with you. This right. is, it's as if we're, it's 1987, 88, and we're recording So Far So Good So What. It just He's just got this behind-the-beat, backbeat style. Yeah. Nick Menza, completely the opposite pushing the beat, pushing the band, really driving from behind, you yeah, know. Yeah. And and I think, you know, as much as, you know, Chuck had a big part of those early songs on, on Rust in Peace, those first three. I mean, he demoed those and yeah. he was essentially in the band. Um, but then as we started to, um, we needed a guitar player because things were done with Jeff Young and wasn't going to go forward anymore. So we reached out to Jeff Waters, yep. who, uh, yep. but, but Annihilator was blowing up. And Jeff was a very different person, and we joke about it now because now I'm good friends with him. In fact, I just helped officiate his wedding. Yes, last all year. right, yeah. 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 So, yeah. heard about that? Yeah. yeah, I saw a picture of you recently. I think you were driving, and Jeff and his wife. Were in yes, the exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I think we we're in an Uber. Yeah, but I was doing the <laughs> selfie. Yeah, and so like we're we're best friends. We talk about the what if I was in Megadeth, you know? And it wasn't meant to be at that time. And then the next person we reached out to, I just been I was dating this girl down in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, Dallas, basically. And she introduced me to the Pantera guys. When right. we down. And we went out one night and did, went drinking. This was 88, so I was still partying. <laughs> and, um, you know, Dime, to, and his, it wasn't, he wasn't Dimebag. He was Diamond Daryl back then, yep. right? Yeah. And he was a real guitar star. You could see he was in all the little kind of fanzine magazines and stuff. And, and we went out drinking, and he told me, he goes, at the end of the night, he goes, he goes, Dad, peace sales changed my life, you know? And, I, and he, that was like a sober moment in the right. midst of all of our drinking. Yeah. He just looked at me and he goes, peace sales, that record changed my life. And I was just like, wow, no kidding. And the next night they played and invited me up. I, I jammed peace sales with them. And those guys could drink a ton and play really good. I mean, it was shocking how, how hammered they would be, yet just kicking ass like Van Halen. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing. And um, so they, you know, so fast forward a few months and, and I tell Dave about, you know, about, about Daryl. And so we, Dave called him up and, um, and, uh, and he's, he said, hey, I'm honored, but with me comes my brother. And right. at the time, you know, we didn't need a drummer. We had Chuck Beeler. Yeah. So it didn't, wasn't meant, meant to be, obviously. Um, Did you think about recalling him when no. Chuck... Because, you know, the thing is, is, you know, as life moved, then, then, then the next thing that happened is Chuck was, you know, 
we were all very loaded, you know, and right. Chuck just sort of sort of disappeared into the background, you know, and, and so we had to move forward, and that's when we called Nick and said, right. you know, because that was one of the reasons Nick was out drum teching on the So Far So Good So What tour. It was kind of as an understudy, just in case anything happens. Right. Gotcha. Um, yep. I've actually and, never heard that before. No, yeah. I've never heard, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so so Nick was ready to go. And so Dave said, look, go get in the studio with him. Let's let's get it going, you know. So I, I broke in a lot of Megadeth members in, guitar players <laughs> and otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 even the guitar players, I can usually get them because I can play rhythm guitar really well. And I know, you know, certainly in those days, that Megadeth stuff, I knew all the rhythm parts. So I could, even Marty, I mean, I could get him to about 80%. And then I'd right. have to hand him over to Dave to polish him up, you know, and finish right, yeah. it off, you know. But... Um, but you know, it's part of my role in the band, you know, but I, so I took Nick in and to, to audition and he, man, he rushed and pushed the tempo. So I'm like, bro, you got to pull it back, you know? Um, but he was excited and he, but he had an energy and, and you know what? Me and Dave needed that. We, yeah. the band needed that. The band needed someone really just pushing, you know, and, and just, and, and he did it on the drums. He did it in life. Um, he would often push Dave too far like you know <laughs> like the first night he's drum teching for us dave we were playing a little warm-up show on the so far so good so what tour and uh like riverside california mm-hmm. outside of la or something and um and dave was late coming down because of the traffic on the freeway so he didn't make a sound check so nick goes right up to the mic and starts singing peace cells i'm like dude you got some fucking balls man <laughs> stepping into the batter's box right there yeah. like that's kind of sacred ground like like no especially a new guy like yeah, the new, yeah. you know like you don't do that you know <laughs> no. what i mean and that right right there i mean from day one with nick i'm like this guy you know what i mean so it's uh but you know that chemistry in the band um i mean i think ultimately it landed him out of the band uh, right, yeah. 10 oh. years later yeah. i mean i think you know there just came up a point where it's like you know you Part of life is knowing when to apply pressure. Yes. And then the other part, you know, hit the gas, hit the brake. Yep. You know, you can't hit the brake, the, the gas the whole time or you're just going to run into stuff, yeah. you know. Yep. Um, but, you know, so, you know, he came into the band, I guess, I don't know, April, May of uh, 89. And then that began, you know, him in the band. And then the rehearsals, we wrote the rest of the record with, right. with, with him there, you know. So um, it's probably half of it was done um, up till then and then we finished the other half of it with Nick
get uh, Marty, <coughs> then you get the Marty. poser. Well, and it's it's funny. Before <laughs> that, even we were a three piece, so we had this all done. Right. Ron Lafitte comes in to manage us. We start getting sobered up, and uh, in December of '89, we went into a um, EMI Music Publishing, who was our publisher at the time, had a, a, a songwriting studio hmm. uh, in uh, on a, in the office right there on Sunset Boulevard, right across the street from the infamous Tower Records. Oh, right. right yep. And that was where Lafitte's management office was. He worked for a company there called Lippman and Kahane. And um, <clears throat> so we went in to demo the, basically the Rust and Peace, everything hmm. except Dawn Patrol, because we didn't have that, I didn't have that little riff yet. Yeah. And um, to just kind of get a feel of the two of the two guitar we thought well shit well i guess we're going to do it like so far so goes what it'll be the three of us <laughs> yeah. yeah and we'll get uh you know whoever the new jeff young guy is right. we'll get him to come in and i guess yeah. we'll pick it up from there you know yeah so we hired chris poland to come in and play right. on those tracks just to give it a bit of a, a different sound and and um <clears throat> and may have even been kind of you know marty May have, I think we so basically we record that it's December flip the calendar now it's January you know uh, 1990 mm. and so I think it was we actually it was when we were doing those demos we went downstairs to Lafitte's office and there were these two records sitting there Cacophony and Marty Friedman's Dragon's Kiss and we're right. like who's this guy and he goes and he Ron told us he goes dude guy I've been telling you this guy wants an audition he's been calling he's saying his records over and because he was on Mike Varney's shrapnel record, oh, right? Yes. And so we're like, well, we know who he is. He was in Hawaii, remembers being in Hawaii. And um, me and Dave were like, we got nothing to lose. We, uh, during 89, we'd already dish auditioned like 10 people to, okay. with no success. Right. In fact, when we, that was right when Nick got in the band. We started auditioning some guys. Yeah. <clears throat> and basically, we'd bring him in. And you, we could tell when a guy walks in the room, is like, that ain't the guy. Right, yeah. Like, you can just tell, like, you know, how he dresses, how right. he looks, his demeanor. But you know, those guys, were they known guys? or no, just like mostly unknown, unknown guys. Yeah. Mostly unknown yeah. guys, yeah. And, um, and it just wasn't the right thing. And so we basically, they'd come in, we'd play a song or two, and then we'd tell Nick, you know, like, you got to usher him out and tell him, like, they're <laughs> not going to get the job, you know. <laughs> Let the new guy do that. <laughs> so, um, and... Uh, so we'd been through that. That's why we went in the studio, and then we had Chris mm. play on on some solos, play some stuff down. So we turned the corner into, into you know 1990, and we're like, all right, look, let's let's get get this Marty guy down here and let's see what he's got. And we were kind of like a little laissez about it because it's like, you know, none of these other guys have worked, you know. And but I tell you, he hired a guitar tech who loaded all the stuff in. He showed up. He looked like he was in the Ramones, had his Ramones shirt on, his, his jeans with his holes in him. And, he, I mean, he had a look. It was like, this guy looks like at least a professional rock and roll guitar player, you know. Mm. And, you know, he plugged in. He had all of his carbon gears, carbon amps and guitars. And, and he, I think we played Wake Up Dead, and I forgot a couple a couple tunes that we played. And um, you're like, you know, and it was, you know, I, and I stood next to him when we played, and he looked cool. He at least had a vibe. He had an energy, and it was like, you know, we sound pretty good with him. Mm. And again, this this music is very intricate, all this yeah. Megadeth yeah. stuff, and it's impossible to get all of it without, you know, sitting down in the room and mm. going yeah. over the details. And he was probably seventy five percent there, and it was like, you know, and Martin, Dave just, you know, went outside and he came back in, and he said, okay, you're the guy. Let's go. Let's get to work. And I mean, it was kind of like made the decision, and that right. was it. And then right after that, the opportunity for Mike Klink um, 
this is this probably January of you know 1990, and like literally a week or two later, you know, uh, Lafitte, one of the uh, Lippman and Kahane, there are two two brothers. Michael Lippman was the older brother, and then the younger brother Terry mm-hmm. Lippman was and still is a manager of record producers. Right. So mm-hmm. he managed Richie Zito and you know I think Ron Nevison and a bunch of guys. Right. So and and also managed Mike Clink. Well, what we didn't so suddenly Mike Clink and hey Mike's available. Well, what we didn't know was that Mike was kind of just on a break with Guns N' Roses, but once Axel called, he had to leave. Like, he had to get back to work on that record. Well, we didn't know that, so we're like, look, Mike comes down, he hears what we're doing. At this point, the record's done, it's written. I mean, it's, it's, all he really had to do was record it, you know? Um, And he's a fantastic engineer. And so, you know, when we went in the studio to start recording, me and Nick, um, Went in the room, Dave, we laid down a, a sort of a scratch pass, wrote the click tracks, we actually had click tracks. Um, and then as we recorded the songs, you know, every one of these songs on Rust in Peace, they almost all have at least a couple different tempos in them. Mm. You know, right. Five Magics, we called that the master of five tempos, because <laughs> it's literally kind of like five <laughs> tempos in the thing. <clears throat> and so basically, we had the scratch guitar laid down to a click track, and then me and Nick went in. And I basically, you know, was the band leader for Nick. I played along with him with bass, and we cut, mm. we cut the drum tracks. And we took three takes of every section, and then Mike went in with the razor blade on two-inch tape and cut it together, which is an art. Yeah. I mean, this day, you know, on Pro Tools, if you mess it up, it yeah. would undo, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. But, you know, that, those days, I mean, cutting tape, and it took him like a week. We took about a week to cut drum tracks, a week to cut it together. And, and expensive. It, it's it expensive, yeah. Right. In a big yeah. room, Rumbo Recorders, which is owned by the captain and Tennille. Remember, I don't know if you remember, as a, as a kid, remember the Captain and Tennille? They were yeah, like huge. Remember Muscat Love? And they were a huge pop star. Yeah, they had a TV right. show in America okay. when I was a kid. I mean, it was like Sunny well, that's it. I think they were, they were huge in America. <clears throat> huge. But I think no yeah. one knew about, knew about yeah, them in, outside, in Europe yeah, or right, outside They were America. the ABBA of America. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. for, you know, what I, you know yeah. in the 70s, you know. So Daryl Dragon, uh, the husband and the keyboard player, you know, he, he owned that studio. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, we were in that big room for like a month locked out, wow. you know? And then so, so yeah, sort of a week of laying it down, a week of cutting drums, a week of chopping tape, a week of playing bass. Then I came in and played bass on it. And, um, and the bass parts were very complex. I mean, just again, because there's no pro tools, you right. can't just sort of fix it later. And, you know, these days, if you put something down, you know, produ- the, the guy running pro tools is like a fifth beetle. Yeah, you know, and they're yeah, so yeah. good and they're so quick, and they're yeah. like, "Look, let me just fix it over here," and they can sort of nudge and fit and put things together, you know. <clears throat> um, but back then, I mean, you know, when you hit the red button, it's destructive record, and you can't get the take back, you know. Right. There's no do over. So <laughs> yeah. when you're, you know, so but Mike was an incredible engineer, and and he was that was the the level of production we needed with it, you know. Right. And then Dave came in, and and the first song he played guitar on was Holy Wars. The first song he sang on was Holy Wars. And, um, you know, so it's, and then on it went from there, you know, and putting it, putting it together. The first solo Marty played was Tornado of Souls. All right. So okay. some of these, you know, couple, it's kind of interesting, those two songs, because they're probably a couple of the standouts. Yeah. And while, while we were, <coughs> excuse me, while we were putting the bass down, Mike Klink would always look at me and goes, so do you guys have any more songs? I said, Mike, this is it. We got whatever, <laughs> seven, eight songs. <coughs> In fact, a couple of them had splits, you know, split titles. Right, Holy Wars, Punishment yeah. Do. Yeah. Rest in peace, Polaris, you know. And yeah. uh, and at this point, David seen a, a bumper sticker that said, may all your warheads rust in peace. Right, and yeah. that's where that we added, rust in peace yeah. slash Polaris. Yeah. So I said, well, look, I got this bass part. And I um, I laid it down. 
Nick played drums, <clears throat> and which was Dawn Patrol. And um, Nick laid down another thing that he had called My Creation, um, and which is on, I think, Worcester on one of the B-sides mm-hmm. yeah, of, yeah. of the records now. And um, Dave liked Dawn Patrol. He liked it, and he went in, and he cut a vocal on it. And cool. um, that's how that, that became the ballad of Rust in Peace. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was, that was just added while we are in the studio. So cool. kind of lined out the record. But that also, I'm thinking, like, tape compared to Pro Tools um, must be... Oh, it can just run. Yeah, okay. It, it yeah. <coughs> yeah, tape. Uh, yeah, back. That, I mean... <coughs> since it was so expensive, you said, like, you had one take, you couldn't undo yeah. it, like, with Pro Tools. Didn't that, like, put... That, that has to put another type of pressure on you sure. as a player compared to today where you can just fix it right away. Yeah. And, and those big rooms, you know, they were $1,200, $1,500 a day. Wow. Times seven, times wow. four weeks. Right. You know, then we moved over into the smaller room, which is, you know, probably a less expensive room. Right. But still, we got engineers, we've got assistants, yeah. there's the producer, you know, Mike's got a certain fee he's getting. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it's... Um, You know, and we were younger musicians back then, you know, learning to kind of groove. And, you know, you're, you're, you know, I was 25, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I forget how young me and Dave were when we were cutting this stuff, you know what I mean? <laughs> That is really young. Yeah, you know? it's very young. You, you, yeah. You're, yeah. you're also a well and truly, a, you know, established band, you know, right. leading the pack. You know, there was basically two pack leaders then. Yeah. You and, you and Metallica. And Metallica, yeah. for sure, and yeah. 25 years old and releasing... Um, Right. questionably your best record you know my, my entry point was peace cells you know i still hold that as really right high, right right you know and um, that was very similar i mean a whole other set of circumstances yeah. <clears throat> around that but again not a lot of money yeah. you know we went from eight thousand dollars for killing is my business and we got a big whopping twenty five thousand dollar advance to do 
He sells, which was a lot of money back then. But yeah. again, we also had to try to live on that because we yeah. were broke, you know. Yeah. So again, trying to, you know, make that record on that kind of money. But, you know, it's interesting when you're in a room writing a record. Um, and we're working on some of that even on the new record now because there's a spirit. I mean, the band now plays so good I yeah. Mean, yeah. with Dirk and Kiko. I mean, just Un- great. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and yeah. That, that, even when we're in Nashville, it's, you know, there have been times when, you know, Dave will be working on stuff and he'll just leave the room and go back over to his house. And, you know, and then our, you know, our engineer and producer, you know, Chris Rakestar will be like, you know, you guys plug in, jam. Like, let's let's jam. And, I mean, we'll throw some riffs at each other. And it's just amazing how good we play. Yeah. Cool. You know, that it's, it's so anyway, you know, I don't know yet the outcome of the new record. Um, but it's it, there's a feeling about it that feels like it was back in probably the Rust in Peace days. Because I think Rust in Peace, again, wasn't just about the music. It was about now there's four guys. We look the same. Yep. Yep. We listen to the same music. Yep. Um, we're of a similar age. And I think that was the thing with, with the first two records with Gar and Chris. They were older musicians. Right. They they'd had Their passion was really, they had a band called the New Yorkers, which is this heavy Mahavishnu kind of fusion type of stuff. That didn't. It, they just missed the window for whatever reason, you know. Yeah. They zigged and the rest of the world zagged. You know, yeah. they're playing jazz and suddenly Hollywood wanted Motley Crue. Right, you know, right. And yeah. Wasp and Rat and all that. And that's what happened. And they, they just, they didn't get in the in the circle in time. And, you know, so kind of disgruntled, guarded a day job working at BC Rich. You know, as cool as that oh. is, it's, you know, when you're a musician, you'd still rather be playing. Yep. You know, sure. so now we get those guys get into Megadeth. But they're older you know, now listening to me and Dave and, you know, and, you know, Dave's the boss and he's younger than them and, you know, not really one to negotiate too much. But it's kind of like this is what we're <laughs> right. doing. This is yeah. why we're doing it. Yeah. I was in Metallica. I know what I'm doing here. Yeah. You know, like like I'm, we're not screwing around, you know, and it was hard for them to take direction from yeah. from from Dave and from someone younger than them. And I, yeah. I get it, you know. Oh, sure. I get it. Sure. And in a different genre. Yep. You know, an, an unexplored new territory, you know, so it's it's easy to join Megadeth now because you kind of know what it is. Like the blueprint has been laid out. But when yeah. you're writing the blueprint, that was that was a whole different story, you yeah. know, back yeah. in those. And Rust in Peace, I think, was still part of that blueprint for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as, as a bass player, you're, you're really instrumental in, um, in in that scene as well. Can you can you feel that now? Do you get a lot of people coming up to you now and 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 also name dropping Rust in Peace? Because you're it's a very bass heavy record. Yeah, too. for sure, yeah. for sure. No, I, absolutely. In fact, I you know people ask me, hey, what new bass players you listen to? And I and I I, I got it. You know, Tobias Tobias, I guess is how you it's. He's probably one of my favorite bass players. Right. I mean, he's just phenomenal. I love the the bass riffs. And the stuff that he plays on the Ghost Records. And oh, I don't right. know if he, if he plays it in the final, but I know he certainly writes that stuff. Right, yeah. And um, it's great. I mean, it's just, it's like, that's just, that's great bass playing. And because, I mean, that's like the kind of writing on the level of Glenn Hughes and, you know, this very aggressive uh, type of playing that th- then you're going to lay a vocal on top of a very melodic. So let's face it, you know, you might listen to a bass riff for a few bars but then you're going to start listening to the singer again you know yep, what I mean yep. so um, you know there really aren't I mean I, I wish there was I wish there was someone that really caught me I mean obviously you know Justin from Tool is okay. certainly oh, one sure, of the more yeah. recent but again that's even 20 years ago yeah. yep, yep. you know 
Um, so, you know, I, again, you know, I think probably Tobias is, is one of the more outstanding bass players and he doesn't, he's not known as a bass player because he's a singer of his yeah. band, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. knowing a little more that, you know, th- from what he's disclosed in interviews about being, a, you know, writes a lot yeah, of stuff yeah. on yeah. bass, it's like, yeah, that's, that's good bass playing, man, yeah. to <laughs> me, you know, that's bass playing that worked well in songs. Right, yeah. Because, you know, it's one thing to go to the NAM show and hear some guy showing out his chops, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's like, like I learned in, uh, before we even recorded Killing Is My Business is like, okay, can you just play some eighth notes? Because that's what we need here. Yeah. Right, and yeah. if you can't, we're going to call someone else who right, can. Yeah. And that was a real wake up. And I, I never got it put to me that harshly. But the message was, look, you really need to be able to just lock in with a click here. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And that was a really, and which I could do fine. But suddenly playing this very complex Megadeth stuff, do I use fingers, do I use a pick? And that's how I ended up being a pick player because it was just easier to play Dave's riffs with a pick yeah. than it was to play them with the fingers. The fingers just didn't work. It works great for Steve Harris. It works great for Geddy Lee. Yeah. It just did not work. In, in, and even with Cliff Burton, yep. you know, and I don't know how sometimes because, you know, knowing the, you know, again, very similar rhythm guitar playing that James yep. and Dave, you yeah. know. Um, which is why I think even on Mechanics, which is our, our obviously our version of that song, the mm. original version yep. that Dave brought into Metallica, I play Ron McGovney's bass line. Oh, right. And okay. he was a pick player. Like, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. when I, when because I, the first Metallica I heard was not the Cliff Burton stuff. It was No Life to Leather. Yeah, of course. Uh, because I met Dave in June of 83, and that was, what, two, three months before right. Kill em All yeah, came yeah, out. Yeah. And, um, and so when I was listening to No Life to Leather, I really liked McGovney's bass playing. I thought it was very cool. It <laughs> yeah. was it was perfectly fitted for the songs. Yeah, he played with the picks. You could hear it well. Yeah, uh, and it, and it was just a very just a good supportive bass playing. Mm. Love Interesting. It. Yeah, I think that's it. Time's yeah, um, you have to chop that up into like four inter- four <laughs> segments. I think we talked a lot there. Sorry about that. Um, I love it. Love it. Thanks for your time. Ooh. Great to see you. Thanks for thanks Welcome. for talking us through. It's definitely a, a record that influenced both of us. So it's uh, <coughs> nice to hear some of the stories directly from you. Yeah, you're welcome. Excellent. You're welcome. And we'll see you soon. You're Next time we talk, we'll get into that. What happened actually when we recorded and toured it? We just did the writing and leading up to it. <laughs> yeah. It was like it was like a year and a half just to get to pressing the red button and recording the damn exactly. thing. <laughs> so stay tuned. There will be a part two of this one. Yes. Excellent, Dave. Thanks for your time. Welcome. Thanks. See you soon.